This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello and welcome to another coronavirus lockdown survival Talking Flutes podcast with me, Jean-Paul Wright. The intro music is, as usual, Bessame Mucho, played by the wonderful Giovanni Perez. As I've been mentioning during the past few weeks, I wanted to use this time of social isolation and being holed up in my house just outside of London to catch up with some of the wonderful flutists and musicians who always seem to be too busy flying around the world performing to speak with little old me. So this week, I have a very special treat for you, as I am speaking to a musician, author, flute teacher, educator, and acclaimed performance anxiety coach. This lady teaches musicians, speakers, dancers, actors, business professionals, and athletes to perform with confidence, concentration, and consistency. A recipient of a Fulbright Senior Teaching Fellowship, She has many years and experience in the fields of education, public speaking, flute teaching, and is a nationally certified grief counsellor. I'd like to give a Talking Flutes Extra podcast welcome to the lovely Helen Spielman. This is London Calling. This is London Calling. Hello, Helen. Hi, Jean-Paul. How are you? I am very well indeed, and thank you for joining me this morning. It's my great honour. Oh, (laughs) you're too kind. Firstly... How how is lockdown for you, and where are you? I'm in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, in the southeastern part of the U.S., and uh, we're doing, compared to many places, fairly well here. Are you um, completely confined to your home, or do you have certain uh, relaxations of rules? We're... We're asked to be at home. We are allowed to walk outside for exercise. So it sounds like you're in your part of the world, you're sort of behaving yourselves. I'm seeing these, um, these films of people down in Florida, just all taken to the beaches. Where I live, we're not exactly right near the beach, so we don't, we don't go there. <laughs> but you're keeping safe anyway. We are keeping safe and following the rules because we want to stay healthy. Do you know that's such important at this time? And when we do come out of it, it's going to be a different world, isn't it? Or do you think it will be? Do you think we'll naturally just gravitate back to how it was? Oh, I think we're going to have a, a different world in many ways, both for musicians and for everyone else. I think it'll be different yeah. From now on. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, for creatives, it's a dreadful time, isn't it? It really is. My heart goes out to everyone who is suffering, whether it's in their health or economically or with loss. It's very hard. On social media, there is all the musicians have been trying their best to, if they can't do it personally, to do it online via Zoom or FaceTime or Skype doing lessons and performances, but I think the problem has occurred is that with everybody doing it, there's a lot of fog, and it doesn't beat playing to a live audience or doing a one-on-one or one-on-class tutorial. It can never replace that 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 exchange of energy and, and beautiful connection that happens when you're in a room together. It, it can never replace that, but it can serve as a possible substitute if necessary. Yeah, I like the fact you're using energy. That's an important word to you, isn't it? Energy. Yes, it is. Energy. Mm-hmm. How would you, that's probably an unfair question, but how would you define energy for uh, a creative person? Well, I think that would be, everybody needs to define that for themselves. I can say that for myself, The energy that I found within me was the energy of love, the energy of love for the music, the energy of love for my students, 
the energy of love for my audience members, for my colleagues, for sharing my music with my friends. It was love that was the energy that that um, propelled me to do all of what I did most of my life through through music. Yeah, I mean, love conquers everything, doesn't it? Yeah. But it's interesting you took the word love as a focal point and obviously energy that love produces and you've used it and crystallized it your entire life to take you through being a flute player, a teacher and to ultimately helping people. And that's through the the process of just loving what you do and loving everybody else. I remember even before I could place my finger on that it was love. I remember as a young girl, my my goal was always to help people in one way or another. And I guess that's what I've done. Can we talk about something very important to you? And it is a book, which has a very interesting title, Helen, called <laughs> A Flute in My Refrigerator. What really got to me was that title, which I assume didn't arise when you found a flute actually in your fridge. I did find a flute in my (laughs) fridge. (laughs) Really? I did. And uh, one of my students had put his flute in my refrigerator. (laughs) For any reason? Well, I would say that if someone wanted to find out the reason, they'd have to read Read the book. book. Yeah, absolutely. But it's a great name, and it's something that sort of catches you straight away. The content of the book is made up of your various experiences as a flutist, musician, teacher, and also contains many correspondences with musicians, which dovetail beautifully into the narrative. I found it to be a gentle and yet insightful musical journey. So what made you put this down on paper and how long did it take you well when I I was so in love with the flute and so enthusiastic about my performing and my teaching that I couldn't stop talking about it and then that flowed over into my writing about it and one day I I wrote a piece and I sent it into a small national magazine about music. And to my great surprise, the publisher put it on the cover of the magazine. And I said, hmm, this is kind of cool. And then I wrote another piece and he published it again. And at that point, he called me up and asked me if I wanted a regular column in the magazine. And I called up my friend and I told her I couldn't possibly think of enough things to write about. And she said, oh, yes, you can. Go ahead and take it. (laughs) And so I did. And I started writing about all of the things from my heart that were important to me, My, my struggles about becoming a more authentic performer and my love of teaching and the and the things that were happening to my students and my growing awareness of how big and wonderful and connected the flute community is in in my own country and around the world because at the time that I started writing, my first piece was in 1992. It was just only a few years away from when the internet became popular. And I began writing on the internet. And all of these things eventually found themselves into my book. And in some ways, my book took 18 years to write. Mm. Once I... I didn't know I was writing a book, but once I had, I realized I had so much material and I decided to write a book, 
it took me five years from the time that decision was made until it actually was published. And those five years, the actual writing of the stories was pretty easy for me because they flowed out of my natural love and interest in sharing my experience. But the actual writing of the book was really hard, the putting together so that it would be an an interesting flow for the readers. That was hard. But you have a way of, as I said earlier, a lot of the narrative is based around some letters, well, a lot of letters that you've written to famous flute players who over the years, you ended up with this very close relationship, including Sir James Galway, who would happily write back. And the way of writing and the way your passion and your love for what you do came over in these letters. But also, interestingly, I could feel it coming back from the people you were writing to. Well, thank you. I hope that does show because to this day, I have wonderful friends around the world who are flute performers and flute makers and flute uh, sellers who I am so close to and who I love and are in my community. I, I haven't played my flute for a while, but I still consider myself a flutist deep down to my bones. Yeah, it's like riding a bike, Helen, isn't it? Once you start, once you can, you never forget, really. No, no. (laughs) So one question before we ask about how do you get into the field of performance anxiety is, have you experienced, well, as musicians, we all experience sort of low points and high points and this fluctuating flow of emotional energy or ups and downs. Have you had the real dark times that led you to understand or try to find out why you felt like that and then has enabled you then to go on to teach or teach is probably the wrong word I'm speaking about, but you impart that knowledge to others? I started having performance anxiety in the fourth grade oh, good when grade. I was about 10 years old oh. when I could not get up in front of my classroom to give a little explanation and my arms shook and I wanted to die. And that progressed to the time I was in college when I literally could not raise my hand in class to answer a question. And by the time I was in my very early thirties, I decided I, I wanted to share my flute as a soloist, I could play in an orchestra because I was surrounded by many other musicians and I was fine, but I I couldn't do it as a soloist. And so I went on this journey to try to figure out what was causing me to be so intimidated. And for me, and this is not true for everyone, but for me, the roots of my performance anxiety were were seated in my childhood where I had been not attended to emotionally in the ways that I needed to be and where I began to look outside of myself for what I needed and what I actually what I what I thought I I did not learn how to think for myself that's kind of simplistic to answer, but for the purposes of this short call, that's enough to say. I didn't have very good self-esteem. And when I began to learn that whatever I had to share through my music, through my words, was valuable, that it was important because it was mine, and that it was valuable to others. I was able to play my flute as a soloist. I was able to talk to audiences of even a thousand people without notes and enjoy it. And I overcame my own performance anxiety. And so when I 
much later on actually became a performance coach. When people tell me about the suffering that they experience, and it's not just a simple it's not just the simple feeling bad or or fear it's actual suffering about their music performances i relate to that i understand that from a really deep place and i teach i teach performance confidence through evidence based instruction in other words uh, study things that have been studied and substantiated by research, not by what was my own experience. Because when I was going through this, we didn't have all this research. But what I teach is through research. And now people can actually learn to perform confidently and with joy instead of suffering in a much, much shorter amount of time than all the years it took me to get through my disability. You said it exactly right at the end. It's that invisible disability that overwhelms at the wrong times. And people go through hell, as you said, any performer. Well, some people go through hell. Some people have a merely milder you know, performance anxiety shows up more mildly for them, mm-hmm. but it still makes them unhappy. Yes. And music is is a joyful thing. People go into music because they because they love it or because they enjoy it and or because they're good at it. And yet it makes them miserable. Yes, that's, <laughs> and, that's, that's, that's the conflict, isn't it? You go in for, to give joy and happiness and yet it scares the life out of you when you're there. Exactly. And they don't have to. We now know, we know how to help people not have that misery. And a lot of people, I have seen people find the key to what they need within as short of a time as two weeks. Oh, wow. Now, that's not the case for everyone. Some people take a couple of months. Some people take up to a couple of a, a year or so, it's it's different for everyone, but we have substantiated techniques and substantiated evidence to know how to help almost everyone. Do you know how nice that is to hear that? I'm sure there'd be so many of our listeners that they can relate to sort of the mild anxiety you speak to and then the gradual increasing of anxiety levels. I mean, there's there's help for everybody. They just if they're just willing to put their hands up and say, "Help me," and not suffering, and yes. not suffering silence. That's what I'm trying to say, actually, Helen. Yes, and there is still, even though I have been, and it's not just myself. There are, you know, other performance coaches doing this work effectively, but there is still a an embarrassment, for the most part to having performance anxiety. People will say, oh, yes, I'm nervous, I'm nervous. But they don't really share the extent of their pain about it. And the more we can get people to share with each other and the more we can encourage people to ask for help, the less pain there will be and the more joy people will have in being in the arts and being in on stage so Helen I would imagine that it's like uh, a musician being like an onion the older you get you add different layers on top so we we end up as a big onion if you haven't uh, addressed some of these issues that are bubbling away down the bottom does it take a long time to actually unpick the layers or are we best addressing it when we're younger we're best addressing it as soon as we notice it. Sometimes performance anxiety doesn't show up until much later in life. Mm, yes. It's not necessarily a gradual increase over a lifetime. I've worked with people who are in their 50s and even 60s who all of a sudden 
after a lifetime of performing rather comfortably, find themselves feeling almost non-functional in terms of performing. So the thing to remember is that how it shows up is different for everyone. And one of the most important things is to be be very self-aware and recognize that if you're unhappy, if you're hurting, ask for help. And if you have, if you want to ask for help, I encourage people to not wait. In terms of when you might have a performance, I have, I've had a, people email me saying things like, "I'm dying." I have a performance coming up. I have an audition coming up. I want this job so much. I've never wanted anything more in my life. Can you help me? And I'll say, oh, it's most likely that I can. When is your performance? Tomorrow. <laughs> Ooh. I've had that happen a number of times. And that that is not a good idea because most of these techniques and most of the exploration that people might wish to do might take a little while. It might take a couple of weeks. It might take a couple of months. It's unlikely that you can work on this overnight. I suppose, coming from your perspective, trying to find the key to unlock takes a little while as well, doesn't it, to find out where the issues may lie. Well, just like music practice, you don't start practicing your music the day before (laughs) an audition or a church performance or anything else. You start practicing months or even perhaps a year prior to an important engagement. And it's equally important to practice your mental preparation that long in advance. Do you know, Helen, you're actually coming across here, uh, overlapping some of the questions that our audience uh, have asked. So can we move on to some of these questions? before? Because you're so full of information, I don't really want to, uh, to ask you to repeat anything that you're covering when we're talking some of the questions. And yes, the the questions have come in from our social media. And when I put up uh, last week that I'll be speaking to your good self, I received quite a few questions, which I'd like to throw out to you if you don't mind. I'm happy to try to answer them if I can. (laughs) You're very kind, and I know it's hard to do blind, but um, here we go anyway. So, question number one. Why do I get really anxious before I do an audition? My legs start to shake and my mouth really goes dry. Well, the answer in a physical way is that we are flooded with adrenaline, which is the same hormone that makes us able to run fast when we're afraid of something. And that adrenaline makes our bodies shake because we have so much energy running through us. And people who are playing sports like that adrenaline because it makes them faster and stronger. But us musicians who use our small muscles to play instruments then have trouble controlling those small muscles or keeping our knees still or our elbows exactly the way we want them or our lips stopping from, stop from quivering. But the underlying question there is why, why do I really get anxious? That is a question that is, again, different for everyone. It might be because we're worried about what people think of us. That is... That is a very, very big worry that people have. It might be because we feel like we need to be perfect. And unless we are perfect, anything less is unacceptable. 
it might be because we feel underneath of everything that we're just not good enough or we're not as good as someone else. And that question is one that can be addressed and can be learned to look at in a in a more positive, more self-compassionate way. Do you find, Helen, that when people say that question, because I've heard that question before, when you go into an audition, it's quite hard because you hear other people warming up and you form an opinion, don't you, based around what you're hearing. Do you think it is the word compassion and sort of not, not comparing yourself with somebody else, how hard is that to sort of install in somebody that is naturally competitive? It is hard, but it is very possible. And it's not, it's not for anyone to install into someone else. It's for each person to install within themselves. Got you, yes, got you. And what, there, again, there are ways to do that that are extremely effective, even in an audition situation where we are hearing other people warming up, playing the same excerpts that we play, and we thinking, oh my God, you know, they sound so good or better than I or anything. There are ways to tune those out in a positive way so that we can go into that audition and do the job that we are there to do completely and singularly focused. Do you know, I love the idea you don't tell anybody what to do. You just open the door and get them to suck in what is right for them and what works for them. Right. And so if a person were to work with a performance coach, hopefully that coach would be teaching them a wide variety of techniques and that the musician would be learning which of those techniques would be most effective for, for him or her. You give the toolbox to somebody and you get them to choose which ones actually do the job. You're not actually dictating, are you? You just, there's the toolbox, there's all the different strategies. What, let's see what works. Exactly. And if a, if a person, let's say, was learning to do positive self-talk and played a concert and came back and said, okay, this worked, but this didn't work, then together you can fine-tune each of those aspects that was useful or not useful for the musician. Eventually, the musician can get so good at doing it for, for themselves, they don't need a coach anymore. <laughs> that's great. You do yourself out of a job. That's, that's what you do. That's the aim of what you do, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> right, Helen, next question. I am, you you know, I've been very naughty here. I didn't write down the names of the people that have sent these in. So I do apologize in advance, everybody. So the question is, I am usually a very confident person. However, I tend to get the feeling of doom in the week before a performance, which affects my preparation. My performances are usually okay, but I really don't like the stress beforehand. Is there anything I can do to reduce my stress levels? Absolutely. So first of all, most people I have found for working with thousands of musicians and knowing myself, most people have a great deal of negative self-talk inside of their own heads. They, They want to have a good performance, but inside their mind, they are telling themselves the exact opposite things of what they really want to accomplish. And most people are actually unaware of what those negative thoughts are. And the reason they're unaware of them is because these automatic thoughts are very, very fast and they're very, very familiar and we hardly pay any attention to them. So 
often one of the first things I ask my clients to do is to write down all of the negative thoughts that they notice over a period of five days, either on an, in a little notebook they carry with them all day or on their phones. It's not okay to write those down at night going back over the day. You have to catch them right away when they happen because just like not being able to remember a dream as soon as you wake up, these thoughts come and go and you can't get them back. Oftentimes, people will come back to the next session and say, oh my God, I didn't know I was thinking these things. Becoming aware of your negative thoughts is one of the first steps to recognizing that in your own mind, you're self-sabotaging. So a very important technique is to recognize your negative thoughts and then learning how to do positive self-talk in the correct way. And that does not mean to say, I'm the greatest musician in the UK. You wouldn't believe that about yourself. It's not true. And that's not going to work. But to learn to use positive self-talk in the ways that brain researchers have actually found is effective and useful. So that's one very important one. There's another technique that I can just teach your readers right now. Yes, please. I mean, your listeners right now. (laughs) That is very quick and can be done at any time. And it's called half, half, half. And you can imagine yourself and imagine your anxiety just where it is at this moment and actually make it be half as much and then make it be half as much again and then make it be half as much again. And that way you are decreasing your anxiety by half each time without asking yourself to get rid of your anxiety completely, which is unrealistic. It's a very helpful exercise. And many people have found that that is a very useful one. So what do you do? Do you use a visual cue? Do you imagine something like a round circle or do you imagine something a square or whatever the brain brings up? And then you You literally squeeze it down to half and then half. You can do it that way. Some people feel anxiety in their body, for instance, in their chest Mm -hmm. or in in their abdomens. You can do it however you wish. Just feel your anxiety, however it shows up in you. When you mentioned about the positive self-talk, and for me it come over like you are giving the person a counterbalance to the negative talk. And when the, when the positive and the negative sort of meet together, then it brings you back more to a sense of self and balance rather than on the negative side. Is that correct? Or are you trying to give more uh, self-worth and have the balance higher up on the positive than the negative? It's a good question. It's actually that you're trying to replace your negative thoughts Ah. with your positive thoughts. Gotcha. You're trying to replace it. Yeah. Got you. Mm -hmm. you. And actually, neuroscientists have actually seen this phenomenon happen in the brain. So it's possible to replace by what you're thinking the negatives that are sort of invading your mind at that time? Uh, yes, it is. Good grief. Learn something new every day, Helen. Thank you. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the next que- question, and the reason we came onto these questions, is because you just started to deviate onto this. And the question is mental preparation versus physical which is sort of flute practice preparation. How important is it that we integrate mental preparation strategies into our daily practice? And also, what would be the ideal balance between the two? And this person suggested 2080, in other words, 20 mental and 80 practice. Now, with your years and years of working in this field, what do you suggest? Well, I think the balance is... 100, 
hundreds. <laughs> oh, well, did, how did I know that you were going to say this? <laughs> because if you have two performers, let's say vying for the same orchestra position or two students who are taking their jury exams and one one of them has done a small amount of mental preparation and the other has done a hundred percent of mental preparation, I would bet my entire bank account that the person who's done the mental preparation, given that the physical preparation, the, the musical preparation has been the same, will will come out on top every single time. It's an area that I very rarely hear musicians talk about, their own mental preparation. Which is very interesting, isn't it? If you're saying there needs to be a balance, you need to put as much in on one side as you do the other. Do you think musicians do it without knowing? I think musicians who do not have a serious problem with performance anxiety do it without knowing it. Yeah. But musicians who have performance anxiety, who want to be at the top of their game every single time must do mental preparation for every single performance. And I have found in addition that people who have learned to do this and attain the level of performance that they want and become lackadaisical about it, they then find that their musical output decreases. Yeah, I can see that. And I think, I don't know who it was. There was, a, once a, there was a singer that was talking about being able to put over what they are wanting to put over with regards to love or power or whatever it was in this aria. And they were saying that it was impossible to do this if you're concentrating on the notes. You had to have done that. You had to have done the mental preparation beforehand to give you the freedom to be who you were wanted to be or the role you're playing on the stage. Is that the same for flute players, for example? If you do the mental preparation ahead of time, when you go to the audition or you go to a performance, then you're just letting the notes and your music musicality do the work for you. Yes, I would say that is the same thing. Great. So 100% mental preparation and 100% physical preparation. You've heard it from Helen here. No excuses. And <laughs> <laughs> now the next one, Helen. Mental preparation techniques. What foundation exercises can I begin to use to start the process of taking charge of my flute playing? Taking charge. It's a bit of a weird word, isn't it? Taking charge. But... Um, I presume you know what they're talking about with that. Yes. So one of the most effective techniques that we have is called mental visualization or creative visualization or mental imagery. It has many names, but it basically is the same idea. And sports psychologists use this all the time. And people think, musicians think that if you imagine yourself performing, that that's visualization, but it's really not. Real visualization that is effective in helping you play the way you want to play requires you to become extremely relaxed by relaxing every part of your body while sitting or lying down and actually in that way changing the type of brain waves you emit and then going through your performance. Now, again, with each person, this will change. But within visualization, a person can learn to control those shaking legs that we talked about earlier or the dry mouth. A person can control whether he or she can play a particular run, a fast run of music. A person can 
whether he can or she can play that smoothly and accurately, a person can control how they are perceiving their own body on stage and what is one of the most interesting and fascinating things about visualization is that they can imagine while they are doing the visualization they can imagine all sorts of unrealistic and yet helpful creative ideas like having a comforting pet on stage with them or imagining a plexiglass circle around them through which their beautiful music can go out to the audience, but no negative judgments can come in to them. Or they can imagine a comforting blanket or angels on their shoulders or any number of things that they wish to imagine none of which, of course, are known by their orchestra conductor or by a committee or by an audience. This kind of visualization needs to be practiced for at least weeks in advance every single day. And what is so interesting is that each tiny little muscle fiber in the body is actually believing shall we say, that while you are visualizing, it's the real performance. So when you actually get on stage, it's as though you have done this before. And you have it almost like a deja vu experience. And your feelings of serenity, confidence, calmness, focus, enjoyment, positivity, whatever it is, that you want to feel on stage, and that might be different for different people, are there for you. It's an amazing, effective technique. Is this a technique that you would need to find a quiet place and have your eyes closed, or can you uh, use it anywhere and just imagine it in your sort of mind's eye with your eyes open? Certainly in the beginning, it's advisable to have your eyes closed and be in a quiet place because you want to achieve that deep relaxation. When your brain switches from beta waves to alpha waves, that's when you become very receptive to these creative ideas and these creative pictures and feelings that you want to impart into your central nervous system so don't do it when you're driving yeah <laughs> right and, yeah. and and on the other end of the spectrum helen a question says my mind starts to wander when i'm in a performance or an exam how can i stop my mind telling me the hard bits are coming up and then when i play the hard bits right i sometimes make a mistake in the easy parts afterwards i'm sure we've all done that before We've all done that before. <laughs> and so for something like that, I would consider that an issue in concentration. I might suggest to someone a concentration exercise to be able to, again, relax quietly and imagine either a picture on the inside of their forehead of an image that they like, such as a candle, perhaps, or, or something simple that they might like, a leaf, or to focus on their breath going in, in and out of their body, either their breath at their abdomen or their chest rising and falling, and watch that candle or watch your breath going in and out and simply do that for one minute once or twice a day. And I mean only one minute. Set a timer and then stop. And that is the beginning concentration exercise. 
your mind will wander a lot in that minute. And your job in this exercise is simply to bring your mind back to the candle or to your breath without berating yourself. Oh, my gosh. I can't do this. Oh, I'm so stupid. I didn't do that. But just simply like like a little child who ran off in the kindergarten in the kindergarten playground, say, come back, go back to your breath and do that for one minute. And after you've done that for a number of weeks, increase it to two minutes. And when somebody can do that comfortably for five minutes and then 10 minutes and eventually 15 or 20 minutes, that is a great exercise to teach your mind to concentrate. This is done off of the flute or the instrument. And it can be done early in the morning, late at night, or any time that you remember to do it regularly. I love the idea that you have a meditative process within the flute playing. Oh, thanks, thanks for that, Helen. You managed to verbalize it so eloquently that, again, I started doing it. It must be the fact <laughs> that it's late afternoon here in London. <laughs> I know I'm taking up a lot of your time, Helen, but I've got one last question for you. What one piece of advice would you give to an aspiring flute player? I would give the advice to be self-compassionate, to recognize that you are a fragile, beautiful human being first and that you deserve a an internal environment of kindness to yourself from yourself and if you're not giving that to yourself that you go on a journey to learn to do that so that you can Bring your music out from a place of love and authentic joy. That's what I would say. What beautiful words to end a podcast, Helen. That's so heartfelt and so emotionally inclusive for everybody. I love that. Thank you. And thank you for joining me. It has been a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you for doing these podcasts. Thank you once again, Helen. And I'd like to close this beautiful podcast with the gorgeous Helen Spielman with an uplifting paragraph from her website. So please log in, everybody, and check her out. Performconfidently.com. What a very apt website name. And a paragraph is from that website. You deserve to express yourself with joy and freedom, whatever your art. Music speech, dance, acting, selling, and whatever your level, professional, amateur, student. By releasing some or all of your fears, I passionately believe that you can more deeply embrace and share what is in your heart and attain your most longed-for goals. How beautiful. Thank you once again to Helen and to you all for listening in to this Talking Flutes Coronavirus Lockdown survival podcast wherever you are and as your country begins to unlock please try to keep smiling through these strange times keep practicing and know that one day these dark covid clouds will lift and the sun will once again shine through on us all take care and stay healthy goodbye Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.